I want to say good evening. Wonderful crowd again tonight, and we're thankful for each and every one of you that are here. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful day. It's been a day when I've been able to see so many people I haven't seen in a long, long time and visit and just renew old acquaintance. I first came to Plainview in 1977, well actually 76, and in 76 uh, we stayed with Jay and Gay when they lived over on Portland, long time ago Jay, and uh, Jay showed me how to do the five-part study. I was a young preacher, just had entered the work, quit a job and uh, went to preaching. I really had no business preaching. I just uh, admire folks that put up with me long enough to learn a little bit about how to do it. In 1977, when I was here, Jay and I split a meeting. I preached one half of the meeting and Jay preached another. Probably neither one of us needed to be preaching. Uh, we can look back now on that preaching and it probably wasn't that good and yet you folks put up with it. And. Uh, I've appreciated that, and through the years, we've had some really fine association with this church and have learned to love and appreciate Plainview very much. I admire all of you, brethren. I really do, because you've helped so many people, and I've wondered so many times how many millions of dollars have flowed from your hands in this congregation out across the world and across this country to spread the gospel. There is no telling the sums of money that this congregation of Christians here through the years have generated for the cause of Christ. It has to be well-pleasing to God. And that's not to mention your work and your sacrifice and your love and your good name in the community and not just in this community, but you have that good name everywhere that Plainview's mentioned. And uh, it's just a wonderful church. And you that are part of it know that, and you need to appreciate it. And I'll tell you, those of us that are older and have been associated with it so many years do appreciate it very much. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for allowing me to be here today for the gracious invitation. And I want to tell the church thank you because back right around Christmas time or slightly before, uh, you sent a check to me, and I did not write a letter as I normally do, but I had hoped to do something different, and uh, my plan was to sometime thank you verbally, personally, which I'm trying to do today. And I told the elders before I made this trip, I said, I don't want any money. Let me come at my expense. Actually, it's probably your expense anyway from the money you send in the winter. And... Uh, I tried to fulfill that. I've not taken any money from the church, although, and I will not disclose names, one of the sisters approached me before church tonight and handed me a check. And I said, I told the brethren I would come here at my own expense, and she insisted that I take it. And, uh, and I have not even looked at it or anything like that. And so I wanted to be able to say, I've come at my own expense, but I really haven't now, <laughs> but I tried. and. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for the help that you've given me, and not just this past winter, but uh, all through the years. There have been times when y'all have sent to our needs and, and uh, helped us, and, and uh, that has never been forgotten. And we are greatly appreciative, you know, for all of that help. I've never had regular support from Plainview. I'm probably one of the few preachers who hasn't. But I've really appreciated the help that you have given me through the years. And I've appreciated more the fellowship and association with you in the gospel. Thank you so much. It's just a joy to be here. I wonder if there's anyone that didn't get a copy of our study tonight. If you did not, raise a hand. And the brethren will bring one where you are seated. The first four scriptures, or first, actually after I read the opening, the first four, Brother Van will show you on a slide, and then after that you'll be able to look on the back side for the remainder of the scriptures in this study tonight, although I'll probably pull some out of thin air and quote those, because I was sitting there thinking about some thoughts that came to me, you know, before I got up to speak, and 
if I decide to follow those pig trails, I may hold you a little longer tonight and inject some of those. We'll see how it goes. I want to introduce your thoughts tonight from 1 Timothy 4.16. I mentioned this morning we'd talk about Calvinism. That's what I'd like to do tonight. And I can't exhaust this subject. Actually, every one of these doctrines I'm going to mention tonight are worthy of a lesson or a two-part lesson or multi-part lesson. And some of you brethren that teach might want to use these subjects for a lesson sometime for the benefit of the church and just do a full series on Calvinism and it's in great detail, which I won't be able to do tonight because I want to give you the overall about it. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul said to Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Brethren, we have a lot of people today who tell us that doctrine's not all that important, and I'm astounded by some of the statements that I hear from members of the church that should never be made. And sometimes you'll go to talk to folks about certain practices and doctrines, whether it's instrumental music or whether it's any number of things. And they'll say, well, that's not a salvation doctrine. In other words, that doctrine's not important because it's not related to salvation. But I'd like for somebody to tell me what doctrine we could ignore, reject, or disobey that our Lord or the apostles taught. I wish somebody would take my New Testament sometime and mark it up and tell me which doctrines in here are salvation doctrines and which ones aren't. Which ones can I avoid? Which ones are not important that I obey? You know, I read in the Great Commission when Jesus sent the disciples forth, when He told them to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in verse 20 of Matthew 28, He said, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so the Lord, contrary to what brethren say today, wanted everybody taught everything that He commanded. Now, if that's not important to do, why did He command us to do that? You know, I read about two builders in Matthew 7 when the Lord finished His Sermon on the Mount. One of them the Lord said was wise and the other foolish. The wise man, man heard the sayings of Christ and did those sayings. And the foolish builder, remember, who built on the sand, heard the sayings of Christ but did not do those sayings. One obeyed what Jesus said, and the other did not. And whose house was destroyed? The man that would not obey Christ and do what he said. In the passage that we read to Timothy, notice it again. He said to Timothy, Take heed unto thyself, number one, and to the doctrine, number two. Two things he wanted Timothy to give heed to. He said, In taking heed to yourself, you'll save yourself. And then he said, in taking heed to the doctrine, you'll save them that hear you. Brethren, if our doctrine is wrong, if our doctrine is false, we're not going to save anybody. We have religious people today going door to door. They're, they're very zealous people. And they're, they're seemingly concerned about the things that they teach. But their doctrine's false. And these people can't save one soul if their doctrine is not true because it takes the truth to make us free. And so we have to watch our doctrine. We have to be careful about doctrine. There's a lot of false doctrine in the world. And you know, the Lord warned about that. So did the apostles. And I want you to notice some of these warnings before we ever study Calvinism. Notice some things now. First from Christ in Matthew 7 and verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So he likened false teachers then, these false prophets, to wolves that would come in among a flock of sheep. They're that destructive. And you know, they're not dressed like false prophets. They're not dressed like wolves. They're in sheep's clothing. They may even smell like sheep or look like sheep. But he said, inwardly, they're ravening wolves. And just like if you turned a wolf loose among a flock of sheep, that's the way a false teacher is. 
he will destroy that flock. Now there's no other reason for Jesus to give this warning if it's not true, if it's not something we need to be careful about. Beware, he said, of false prophets. That's very plain, isn't it? You know, Paul gave a similar warning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Paul said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created, to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So he warns then of a departure from the faith, of giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. How men would speak lies and hypocrisy, and it would not even bother their conscience. Peter warned in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. He said, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. False teachers, Peter warned us about. Christ, Paul, Peter, now listen to John in 1 John 4, 1. John said, Brethren, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Those are four plain warnings, Christ, Paul, Peter, John, every one of them warning about false teachers, false doctrine. And so if that's not important, why do we have these warnings in Scripture? four different men right here that we've noted, just very briefly. It's because doctrine's important. It truly is. There is doctrine today that's called Calvinism that really back during what we call the Restoration Movement of the 1800s, when the old gospel preachers of long ago went out to preach the Word of God, preach the truth, they ran into some bad doctrines that were called Calvinism. As I mentioned this morning, John Calvin was born in 1509. He was born in France. Calvin was a Catholic, as most people of France were at that time before the Protestant Reformation. But Calvin began to side with the Protestants, and what he did while the Catholics ran him out of France, he took up refuge in Switzerland and there started what's called the Reformed Churches. We know them better in the South as the Presbyterian Churches and others. But Calvin had some distinct doctrines, every one of them connected to each other and every one of them false. And those were spawned upon the world. Calvin only lived 55 years, he died around 1564. But in those 55 years he did a lot of damage and taught a lot of false doctrine. And those doctrines today, while generally not all five of these are practiced by any one group of people, although there are some churches that do, nearly every mainstream denomination has one or more of these. And they're all connected to each other, and I want us to look at them. And you know what's interesting about them, and you can remember them easier if you'll remember the word tulip. That's why it's on your chart up at the top left. T-U-L-I-P, because these letters are the first letter in each of the five doctrines. And when you pull them out from those doctrines, then they spell the word tulip. These five doctrines are this, total hereditary depravity, that's the T. Total hereditary depravity, we'll talk about that in a minute. The second one, the U, unconditional election. The L is limited atonement. The I are irresistible grace. And the P is perseverance of the saints. So they spell the word tulip, the first letter in each one of the doctrines. Remember that. And that'll help you remember these five different doctrines. We'll look at them. They are total hereditary depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, 
perseverance of the saints. Every one of these are connected. So what I want to do tonight is read to you a quote from those who believe in Calvinism, what they say about these particular doctrines, and then we'll talk about what the Bible says on these things, and I'll give you at least four scriptures on every one of these that refutes that doctrine. And there are plenty of other scriptures. I just put uh, some four of them on each one. I may inject a few scriptures that aren't on here, and if I do that, I'll tell you what I'm doing. But nonetheless, these are written out for you now on the back side, and they're in each one of the five columns. The first one here, let's notice the front, hereditary or total hereditary depravity, and here's the quote. Calvinism says this, and you can read the quote with me. Quote, We believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease, wherewith even infants in their mother's womb are infected, and which produces in man all sorts of sin, being in him a root thereof, and therefore is so vile in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. That is a quote from the Belgic Confession Article 15 on original sin, unquote there. So basically what Calvinism says and what John Calvin taught was that, that there is such a thing as total hereditary depravity. That is, we are born totally depraved. And he means by that we cannot seek God on our own. We are so depraved we can't think one good thought or perform one good act. And that if we are going to be saved, God's going to have to seek us because we are born so depraved that we can't seek God. That's what Calvinism teaches. And this is, this is the doctrine that is the root of Calvinism. It starts with the idea of original sin, that we have inherited sin from Adam and Eve, that even infants in their mother's womb are infected with it. So that when your children are in the womb, they are little sinners. And when they're born, they're born little sinners. They've inherited that. And they are totally depraved and separated from God and cannot seek God. And they will never be saved unless God seeks them. Now that's what Calvinism teaches. You wrap your mind around that kind of doctrine. And that's dangerous doctrine. And yet it's believed by people in the world today. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible tells us that we don't inherit sin, that we uh, are born innocent and then later sin. And I want you to notice some scripture now about this. Psalm 58 there on the back and verse 3. The Bible says the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. When he talked about the wicked here, he talks about how they go astray as soon as they be born. Now think about this. If we're born sinners, like Calvinism says, and we go astray as soon as we be born. Now just put your thinking cap on a minute. If you're born a sinner and you go astray as soon as you're born, what do you become? Righteous. If you go astray from being wicked, wouldn't you become righteous? Of course you would. But what does man really do? We go astray. We're born innocent and go astray as soon as we're born, speaking lies. And one of the first things we learn to do, if you'll think back on your early days of childhood, we learn to lie. When mother and dad tell us not to do something or tell us this or that, what do we do? We do it and then hide from them. We do it and then keep them, keep them from knowing about it. We'll even learn to lie and tell them we didn't do that or blame it on someone else. I'm just saying that one of the first things we do is learn to lie. And probably if you want to remember your first sins in life, you can go back to times when you lied to mom and dad or someone about what you did. You see, we go astray after we're born and we start speaking lies. And so we're born in innocence and then go astray from it and begin to sin. 
In Ezekiel 18 and 20, we don't inherit Adam's sin. The Bible says, The soul that sinneth it shall die, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So we're responsible for our own lives. We're responsible for our own sins. The Son does not bear the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father of the Son. We have not inherited sin from Adam, nor from our parents, nor from anybody else. It's the soul that sins that will die. We are responsible, you see. And in, in God's sight, that's how it is. Matthew 19, verse 13 and 14, Rather than little children being born sinners, here's what the Bible says about them, Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He likened little children to those in the kingdom, and vice versa. There's nothing more innocent than a little child. There's nothing more innocent in this assembly than these small children that are here. They're just completely innocent. They've inherited nothing from Adam or anyone else. Paul spoke of his sin in Romans 7, 9. Notice this now. Paul said, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul's talking about his early youth. I was alive without the law. What does he mean? I was alive unto God when I didn't know the law. When I didn't understand right and wrong and good and evil, I was alive unto God. But when the commandment came, when I got knowledge of good and evil, when the law came, and I understood the law, and I understood right and wrong and good and evil. Sin revived, he said, and I died. Now, if we're born totally depraved, we're born dead. How did he revive? How did he become alive? He said he was alive first, then he died. You see, Calvinism says, no, you're dead first and you may come alive. But Paul said, I was alive without the law, and when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. We do not inherit sin. We're responsible. But you know, if you believe in Calvinism and you believe in total hereditary depravity, and that man is born so totally depraved that he cannot seek God, then that leads to the second doctrine. And Calvinism has to have this doctrine next. It's called unconditional election. Because, beloved, look, if we can't seek God, He's got to seek us. And that's where election comes in. Now, here's what Calvinism says about election. This is from John Calvin himself. And I quote, second column now from the left. By predestination we mean the eternal decree of God by which He determined with Himself whatever He wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or the other of these ends, we say that we have been predestinated to life or to death. Now that's from, unquote, that's from the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. So Calvin says that God chose before we were ever born who would be saved and who would be lost, and He made that decree, and there's nothing you and I can do about it. He either determined before we came to earth in the long ago that we are going to hell or we are going to heaven, and you and I don't have a choice in the matter. That's what Calvinism teaches, because if you are totally depraved and can't seek God, then God has to seek you, and He only seeks the elect, according to Calvinism. And if you're one of the elect, He will seek you out. And if you're not one of the elect that He chose to save, it's too bad you're headed to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. That's Calvinism. I heard a story years ago of, of a, a black preacher at a congregation who was asked by the congregation one time to preach on election. They said, would you bring a lesson on election? 
The next Sunday he got up. He said, I've been asked to speak about election today. He said, here's how it works. God, He votes for you. The devil, He votes against you. And you cast the deciding vote. Now that is election, according to the Bible. We cast the deciding vote. God's for us, Satan's against us. That preacher nailed it right there, very simply. Very simply. Calvinism teaches that God's a respecter of persons, but the Bible teaches God does not respect persons. Calvinism teaches that we are elected, whether we want to be or not. The Bible teaches we make our calling and election sure, that's our, that that's our responsibility. So let's notice some scriptures about election and about free will and such things. Romans 2 and verse 11. The Bible says, For there is no respect of persons with God. God doesn't favor one of us over the other. He doesn't respect persons. He's not interested in our, in our parents, in our skin color. He's not interested in what position we may hold in life, what social status we have. He's not interested in those things. He does not respect persons. He loves all. And He gives every one of us an opportunity to be saved. And that salvation comes through our obedience to Him. In Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says this of Christ, Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Christ is the author of eternal salvation to who? To those that God chose before creation. He is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. It's up to you and I whether we obey. In 2 Peter 1, verse 5 to 11, sometimes we call these the Christian graces. Notice now what Peter taught us. He said, Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter talked about adding things to our faith. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, charity, and said that if these things are innocent abound, we won't be barren or unfruitful. But he said if you lack these things, you're blind and can't see afar off, and hath forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. We, we often talk about being blind and forgetful. That's what he's talking about here. If you lack these things, you're blind. You can't see afar off. You're not looking way down the road. You're not looking at your future. And he said, you've also forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Listen, when we become a Christian, we're just forgiven of the sins we've already committed, not future sins. We're not saved start to finish, as people sometimes say. We're purged from our old sins. There's a life yet to be lived. There's these things to be added to our walk with Christ. And so he tells us to add these things to our faith. And he said, if you do these things, you'll never fall. He says to give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now if we're already elect, and our election is sure, then this verse means nothing. This admonition is for nothing. And yet we're commanded to give diligence to make our calling and election sure. See that? That if we do these things, we'll never fall. What if we don't do them? We will fall. 
And then he said, So an entrance shall be administered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's everlasting salvation right there. But it comes by adding these things. It comes through our walk with the Lord. And we're to give diligence. God doesn't want any one of us lost. He's never willed for any person to be lost. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God wills. He's not willing for any person to perish. That's not His will. He never chose that before the beginning of the world. He wants every person to come to repentance. He wants to save every human being He's created. And that's why He sent Jesus into this world. So Calvinism teaches then total hereditary depravity followed by unconditional election. Now that leads to their third doctrine. And that is what's called limited atonement. Limited atonement. What a horrible doctrine. Here's what Calvinism says about that doctrine. Quote, The biblical or Calvinistic position is that Christ intended that His death should atone only for the elect and not for others. Accordingly, according to this position, man is totally depraved, and God loving some with a great love elected them, or in other words, determined that they should be saved. He sent Christ to die for them and them alone, thereby saving them. Thus the atonement of Christ is limited to some and is not intended for all, hence the name limited atonement." Unquote. That's the five points of Calvinism by Edward H. Palmer. And what they're saying, the Calvinist, is that Christ only died for the elect. He didn't die for every person. You see, if you're totally depraved and can't seek God, but you're one of the elect that He chose before the foundation of the world to save, He sent Jesus into this world to die only for you. According to Calvinism, He did not die for those that will not be saved that God determined would go to hell. Why should He die for them? Why would He die for them? They're on the way to hell and they can't change that. God's already decreed it. And so they preach a limited atonement, that He died only for the elect. And so the Bible teaches that Christ died for all. And the Bible teaches that all should come to repentance. Let's notice some Scripture now about what the Bible says about this idea of limited atonement. Let's see if Christ died for every person. What does the Bible say? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that He died for all, that they which, should, which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. So he talked about Christ dying here for all. Notice 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 6. Paul said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There it is. He gave Himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God should taste of death for every man. So He tasted of death for every man. See that? How plain these are. 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with God, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Christ is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, John said, for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Christ is an atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the world. And so God then certainly did not send Christ to this earth to die just for the elect, but He sent Him here to taste of death for every one of us, that every person would have an opportunity to be forgiven. But you see, Calvinism has a limited atonement. Jesus only died for the elect. What a horrible doctrine. But when you believe in total hereditary depravity, and that you can't seek God, therefore God seeks you, and He elected some to salvation and others to damnation, and that He sent Jesus then to make an atonement and die for the elect only, then that leads to the next doctrine. All of these are connected. If any one of them falls, you break the whole chain and you destroy the whole system that Calvin taught. The next one is irresistible grace. You see, beloved, if we can't seek God, God has to seek us, and if we're one of the elect that Jesus atoned for, then, that, then God will send His grace on us, and we can't resist it because we've been chosen to salvation, whether we want to be or not. And He will send a special call to us. Let's read what Calvinism says here. The second column from the right. Calvinism says, quote, Although the general outward call of the gospel can be, and often is, rejected, the special inward call of the Spirit never fails to result in the conversion of those whom it is made. This special call is not made to all sinners, but it is issued to the elect only. The Spirit is in no way dependent upon their help or their cooperation for success in His work of bringing them to Christ. It is for this reason that Calvinists speak of the Spirit's call and of God's grace in saving sinners as being efficacious, invincible, or irresistible. For the grace which the Holy Spirit extends to the elect cannot be thwarted or refused. It never fails to bring them to faith in Christ." Unquote. That's the five points of Calvinism, Steele and Thomas, page 49. And what Calvinism's basically saying, folks, is that if you're one of the elect that Jesus made atonement for, and since you're totally depraved and can't seek God on your own, God will send you a special call that He doesn't send to other sinners. And it's, a, it's such an irresistible call of the Spirit, it's in addition to the gospel. And not everyone gets this call, just the elect. And this call cannot be refused, it cannot be thwarted. It never fails to bring them to Christ. That's what Calvinism teaches. If you're one of the elect, in other words, God's going to send you a special call, and it will result in your salvation whether you're seeking Him or not. You see, this doctrine has to be, if you believe in the other doctrines of Calvinism, they're all connected. Irresistible grace. Do you believe that there is a special call of the Holy Spirit only to the elect that doesn't go to the human race, separate and apart from the gospel? We have a lot of people today who believe that the Holy Spirit works in conversion separate and apart from this Word. He does not. You see, when we preach the gospel, that is the Spirit working on people right there. The Spirit revealed this Word. And if I may deviate from our Scriptures just a minute to just talk about some things along this line. It's a dangerous doctrine, this direct operation of the Holy Spirit apart from the Word. That the Spirit would operate on a sinner apart from this is unthinkable. The Bible says that this Word is the sword of the Spirit. In Ephesians 6 and verse 17, Paul said, Take the helmet of salvation and the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 
The Word of God is quick, that means living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This Word is the sword of the Spirit. It's what He uses to pierce our hearts and convict us of sin, to instill faith in us because faith comes through this Word. It's what He it's what He uses to induce motives for us to repent. This Word tells us of God's goodness and of God's severity and judgment upon those that refuse to repent. And those two things produce godly sorrow that works repentance and leads to salvation. The Spirit uses this Word to instruct us in baptism and how to be born again and obey the gospel. This is the Holy Spirit working on you every time the gospel's preached. Don't ever forget that. He's not going to come to you separate and apart from this gospel because this gospel's sent to every person, and God shows His fairness in doing that by treating every one of us equal. I once walked into a man's house to do a study with him. And he was one of these fellows that believed the Spirit was leading him apart from the Word. And he said, uh, Pat, I want you to know that the Lord spoke to me last night. He told me this and that about you. I said, you know, the Lord spoke to me too, and He told me He, told me he didn't tell you that. And he didn't know what to do with that statement. I was serious because the Lord did speak to me <laughs> and told me He didn't tell the man that. And the man knew he didn't. And he hushed along that line of talk, and I never had to face that again. But next time somebody tells you that, well, just tell them, yeah, the Lord spoke to you too. You see, my revelation was as good as his. In fact, it was better. I had the Word of God. The Spirit did tell me that. I wasn't lying to the man. The Spirit uses the Word to convert us. So they believe in a special call then of the Holy Spirit, this irresistible grace that man cannot refuse. But you see, every one of us folks are called by the gospel, and that leaves us free will in our salvation. And uh, we'll look at some scripture here in just a minute. Let me give you about three others in regard to the gospel. When the Spirit sets out, out to convert us, to begat us and lead us to the new birth, he uses the Word of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 15, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. You see how Paul begot the Corinthians? I have begotten you, he said, through the gospel. In James 1 and 18, James said of his own will, begat He us with the Word of Truth. There it is. That's what the Spirit uses. He's not going to try to convert you apart from the Word. 1 Peter 1, verse 22 and 23. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Now look how the Spirit's connected with the truth there. Seeing you purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So it's this Word that begets us. He said, you're begotten by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. See? And that's what the Spirit uses. This Word is preached to us it's like seed put into our heart that germinates. It convicts us of sin. It imparts faith. It induces us to repent. It leads us to make confession of our faith and to obey the Lord in baptism. It results in our salvation, but it starts with the preaching of the Word. And there is no special call. The Lord draws us through the Word. Now watch these scriptures here in this uh, second column from the right. John 6, verse 44 and 45. Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. 
and I will raise him up at the last day. Let me stop right there. Christ said, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. So we can't come to Jesus unless we're drawn by the Father. But how are we drawn by the Father? Are we drawn through a special call apart from the Word of God by the Holy Spirit? No, He tells us in the next verse how we're drawn. He says, it is written by the prophets, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Do you see how he draws you, brethren? You see how the sinner's drawn? No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So you've got to hear and learn from the Father in order to come unto Christ. That's how the Father draws you, see. And that's what Christ said He did. But He draws us through this Word. That's why in Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, Christ gave the Great Commission, and He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved but he that believeth not shall be damned. So God wants the gospel preached to every creature. Why? So they can believe and obey in baptism and be saved. God's fair. He gives us all the same opportunity, the same gospel. Romans 10, Paul analyzes now how this is brought about, verse 13 to 17. Follow this very closely. It's very logical. Romans is a book of logic, if you've ever studied Romans. Paul was the most logical man there is. And all Romans is, is logic. It really is. If you want a lesson in logic, study Romans. And here's Paul's reasoning now, and look how logical this is. He said in verse 13 of Romans 10, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Esaias saith, Lord, who hath believed our report, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now look at his reasoning again in 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, he said, will be saved. But then he asked, how are they going to call on Him in whom they've not believed? Well, you can't unless you believe in Him. And how are they going to believe in Him of whom they've not heard? You've got to hear to believe. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to preach that Word. And how shall they preach except they be sent? So Paul's order is, you send preachers out, they preach, people hear, so that they can believe, and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But it all starts with the sending out of preachers and the preaching of the Word. And that's why he says in verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. See what the Spirit is using? That sword, that Word. And that's the instrument by, by which He imparts faith. That enables us to call on the name of the Lord in the way the Bible teaches there and to be saved. Starts with the Word. And so in Revelation 22:17, almost the last words of the New Testament, John said, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Now that's the Spirit using the Word, the Gospel. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will. Isn't that the fairness of God? You see, He's no respecter of persons. All right, so we've got total hereditary depravity. Born such a sinner, you can't seek God. Therefore, the doctrine of election, unconditional election, therefore limited atonement, 
And if you're one of the elect that Jesus died for, He sends irresistible grace, says Calvinism. And that leads finally to the last doctrine of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. And that's the, simply the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Because if God chose you to everlasting salvation before the world began, then obviously you can't ever lose that salvation. That's what Calvinism had to teach. And that's the final doctrine connected with it. And let's notice the quote now from Calvinism. Calvinism says, quote, The elect are not only redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Spirit, they are also kept in faith by the almighty power of God. All those who are spiritually united to Christ through regeneration are eternally secure in Him. Nothing can separate them from the eternal and unchangeable love of God. They have been predestinated unto eternal glory and are therefore assured of heaven." Unquote. Once saved, always saved. There's the doctrine. That originated with John Calvin. It's a very popular doctrine today. And that's a quote from the Five Points of Calvinism by Steele and Thomas, page 56. The Bible says a child of God can fall from grace and be lost. Let me give you some scripture now. Galatians 5, verse 1 to 4. I didn't have room to put all this one on there, so I'll have to give it to you verbally. But that's all right, most of you can quote it. Let me tell you a little bit about Galatia. Paul had been there and established a lot of those churches in Galatia. He preached the gospel of God's grace, that we're saved by grace through faith and through the blood of Christ. And that faith is obedient faith. And yet some Judaizers had come in among those churches and were telling those brethren down there in Galatia, unless they were circumcised and kept Moses' law, they couldn't be saved. And those foolish Galatians had swallowed that. And they had left the gospel of God's grace and they went back to the law. They had themselves circumcised and they were trying to keep Moses' law. Now the problem with being justified by law keeping is this. You've got to keep it perfectly. And the law didn't have a sacrificial system that could take away sin. Once you broke it, all the law then could do was condemn you. And these Galatians had swallowed that lie of these Judaizing false teachers. I talked about false doctrine being dangerous. This is false doctrine. And they had believed that and they had left the grace of God and gone back to the law of Moses, which cannot save anyone. The Bible tells us that the law won't justify us. It cannot. It takes the grace of God, and it takes the blood of Jesus, and it takes the mercy of God. And without it, we're lost. And so Paul talks to them about what they've done. He tells them actually in verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's the law. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. And what he means there is that if you're going to be circumcised in order for salvation, you become indebted then to do everything the law says. That's the only way the law will ever save you is don't ever break it. Then he said in verse 4, if you'll read there with me, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. They not only had the possibility of falling, they had fallen. He said, ye are fallen from grace. They'd already done it. Hebrews 6, 4-6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and had tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they've crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. These are people that were once enlightened. He said they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. 
They were saved without question. But he said if they fall away, it's impossible to renew some of them to repentance. And that sometimes happens when folks fall away from the Lord. You can't ever bring them back to repentance. You never can produce in them godly sorrow that works the repentance they need. Hebrews 10, 28-29, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who had trodden underfoot the Son of God, and counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and had done despite under the Spirit of grace. So he talked about those here that have that have trotted, trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of Christ, wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. So they once were sanctified by the blood, and now the blood means nothing to them. 2 Peter 2, verse 20 to 22. If after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So he tells them here it's better for them not to have known the way of righteousness and after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog has turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So he talks about those that escape the pollutions of the world and then they get entangled therein again and overcome. And he said the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it to turn from it. But he said it's just like the true Proverbs. The dog's gone back to his vomit. And if you've ever watched dogs, they will throw things up that will not digest and later go back and lap it up. And that's what sinners do sometimes when they leave the world and go right back to it. Or he said it's like a sow that was washed that goes right back to wallowing in the mire. Some people get clean through the blood of Christ and then go right back to the filth of the world. He said the latter end's worse than the beginning. And that can mean only one thing, they're lost. So here's five doctrines of Calvinism, all of them connected, every one of them false. And we've only scratched the surface on scriptures that refute these five doctrines. If any of you brethren wish to expand on these further, there are five lessons here waiting to be given, five subjects, maybe requiring even more than one lesson. And they would make great studies to warn us all of the dangers of these false doctrines. And these are in the world today, and they're making a comeback. And that's the reason I wanted to talk on the subject tonight. This is coming back in our day and age. It really had died down immensely through the years, and now it's making a comeback. And so we're going to have to know how to talk to our religious friends and neighbors. And this is not about winning a religious argument, brethren. You know, anybody that knows the Bible can win a religious argument. And I don't know about you, but I'm not into winning arguments. I don't care to argue with people and, and just try to nail them and pin them down and show them they're wrong and I'm right and all this. I have no interest in that. My interest is a little bit deeper and a little bit greater than that. You see, these people need our compassion. They need help. They need understanding. And it's incumbent upon us to know the truth and to give them the truth that will make them free. And so let's study these things out and let's be able to answer people as, as Peter commands us. To answer them that ask us a reason of the hope that's in us with meekness and fear. I hope this will get you started on that and help you in some way. And I, I hope uh, the study has been beneficial. We do not know the minds of anyone that uh, attends assemblies. And sometimes there's a lot of needs under these Sunday clothes. Needs that we can't see, but they're there and you know them. And they could be burdens, they could be guilt, they could be sin, they could just be problems in your life. Things that you really need prayer about. 
And that's the reason we're God's family and God's people. And if you need prayer today, you have that privilege to come and request it of God's people. And the Bible says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we will appoint one of the brethren to come and lead a prayer in your behalf. And all of us will join in that prayer to the Father. Or if you're here tonight and you wish to obey the Lord in baptism and you haven't done that yet, any of the brethren here that administer baptism will be glad to do that. You can have your choice of that. and You can certainly obey the Lord tonight if you need to do that. And we would encourage you to come and do it and not delay, not let the devil hinder you from obedience to the Lord. So as we rise and sing tonight, if you need to respond, if you need to come, why not have a seat at the front and let us know your needs while we rise and sing the song.